podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello everyone, welcome to this week's edition of the Spanish Football Podcast. I'm Phil Kitchmalides, joined by Dr Sidlow. Hello Sydney. Hello Philip, how are you? I've got a little bit of a cold. Oh dear. Uh, it feels like a... Feels like a lot of people in Madrid have got a bit of a cold right now. The cold snap has come. It definitely has. It's absolutely pissing down with rain. Pouring with rain, I was going to say. Yeah, pouring with rain and grey and a little bit chilly. Uh, but uh, we've had lots of decent football to warm us up and entertain us over the weekend. Uh, so let's get right to it. Match day 14 went a little bit like this. Friday night saw Levante and Athletic Club play out a a nil-nil draw. On Saturday, uh, Celta and Villarreal also played out a draw. It finished 1-1. Uh, two pretty big goalkeeping howlers from either keeper leading to uh, both goals. Then Sevilla and Alaves played out a 2-2 draw. Sevilla had won all five of their previous home matches uh, this season, but Alaves were 2-1 up heading into injury time before even Rakitic scored a late, late equaliser for Julian Lopetegui's side. It absolutely poured down with rain uh, in Sevilla. Biblical downpour. Uh, and it was really nice and sunny in Vigo in the game before. So it was <laughs> a little bit weird, the weather on Saturday in Spain. And then Atletico Madrid beat Osasuna 1-0 at the Wanda Metropolitano. A late, late goal from Felipe of all people he's been much criticised the Brazilian centre-back this season but he popped up with an important header and a very impressive acrobatic celebration to give Atletico Madrid all three <laughs> points and then you were in Barcelona Sydney you were at the camp now for the first game of the Xavi Hernandez era his first match in charge uh, of Barcelona uh, it happened to be the Barcelona derby against Espanyol uh, the hosts won Xavi's side won by a goal to nil scored from the penalty spot by Memphis Depay. Uh, more on, on that to come. Uh, Sunday saw Getafe thrash Cadiz by four goals to nil, three thumping headers and a brilliant goal from uh, Jaime Mata in, in injury time to round off an absolute rout for Getafe. Uh, then Real Madrid won really, really comfortably one of their best performances of the season, 4-1 at Granada. Vinicius Jr. getting amongst the uh, goals, his eighth of the season. He's absolutely flying. Uh, Belche... Th- Belche. <laughs> Betis, <laughs> Betis thrashed Elche by three goals to nil. It turned out to be the, the final game in charge for Fran Escriba as manager of uh, Elche. He was, he was sacked uh, after the game. Uh, we'll talk a bit more about that. But they did defend absolutely abysmally uh, in the first 27 minutes of that game where Betis scored three goals. Uh, they were 3-0 up at halftime. Uh, it could have been six or seven. And then the final game of the weekend... Saw Real Sociedad and Valencia play out a nil-nil draw, the game that you were at, Sydney. Um, Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that as well. Uh, Monday is uh, the game between Rio and Mallorca. I was just telling you before we came on air, I don't think I'm going to make it to that one. Much as I would love to, um, it is is pouring with rain. I do have a little bit of a cold and I don't have childcare anyway. So that's my excuse. My missus isn't back from work in time, so I can't go. Um, But I would love to. You're going, aren't you? You lucky boy. Uh, well, I don't know if lucky is really the right <laughs> word for it. Looking out, looking out that window, you, you there's a bit of me that thinks, you know, yeah. yeah, there's a bit of me that thinks, you know, if I hadn't applied for accreditation already, maybe I wouldn't be going because yeah. I, I'm always very reluctant to, to 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 let people down on accreditations and stuff. It'll be great once you get there. It'll be fantastic. Um, if you uh, join us over at patreon.com forward slash TSFP this week, we'll have a Q and A pod out tomorrow answering all 
of your questions. We'll have a bonus pod on Thursday talking this week's Champions League games and the final episode of our TSFP Presents series, Messy Moments, which will come out on Friday. You also get access to our Discord. We're chatting away all the time on there and interacting with uh, all the different patrons. It's four euros a month. It's a euro a week. It's a very small amount of money for quite a lot of content. So if you fancy it, come and join us. Right, the talking points from this week will obviously start in Barcelona at the camp now in that First game in charge for Xavi Hernandez. I mean, only been there a couple of days, only had a couple of training sessions. Were, were there any major differences you could spot, Sid, from, from Xavi's Barca? Bearing in mind, you were also pitch side, so that does kind of condition how you how you see the game. No, I was fortunate enough not to be pitch side. Oh, you I was weren't? pitch side, okay. pre- oh, I was pitch side pre-game, but I was up in the stands um, for the game. Oh, that's good. So, that's better. so yeah. I had I had a, a, a slight dash just before the game started, but but I was there in plenty of time. Um, was there anything different? Yes, I think there was. Um, and I think the question mark really is which part of the game you take to make your analysis with. And, and I think Xavi was, was entitled to say, as he did after the game, that for 65, 70 minutes, he was quite pleased with this. Now, I personally think that 65, 70 minutes might be pushing it a little bit. Yeah. I think it might be a little bit less than that. Yeah, but first half. I do think, I do think it, broadly speaking, you can certainly take the first half. Yeah. And you can maybe take a little bit of the second half as, as well. I think yeah. what we saw... And I suppose on one level, at least, this is natural because bear in mind that Xavi Hernandez has been in charge for 12 days and had only had two training sessions with all his players available because they were coming back from the international break. So I think what we saw was some shift in the intentions of the team, the way that they want to play. And at times, they clearly did some of those things. Mm. Um, But I think we then saw, if you like, a revert to type um, or at least a revert to recent type. I think we saw some of the concerns that they have, some of the vulnerability and some of the, if you like, the lack of character to maybe believe in those ideas that they're trying to impose or to believe that they are truly capable of imposing them. And I think part of Chavi's, I think part of Chavi's role will be, of course, to try and reinforce that sufficiently that there is the confidence to do some of the things that he wants them to do. Now, let me try and explain what some of those things are. Um, before we kind of then talk about the moments in which it started to break down. And, and look, just another thing to put this into context, I was talking to a manager the other day um, and he was sort of saying with Chavi, he said, yeah, Chavi, you know, it's, it's all well and good. He said, but the reality is, and I, I, I apologise for individualising this, but I'm going to because that was, this is why I was told it. Right. The reality is that's still Oscar Mingetha on the ball. Oh, you know, whoever, that's a bit whoever, mean. Poor old Oscar. Yeah, it, is, it is, but I mean, it's about, but it's true. It's about yeah. if you like, expressing the, you know, what the situation is. Where we're is. at, okay. where we're at right so, now. Yeah. So, let's start from the start. What we saw that was different, well, first of all, we saw the starting lineup, and I think that in itself was significant. Mm-hmm. And why was it significant? Well, because Elias started. Uh, now, Elias is a 17-year-old kid who hadn't played for Barcelona yet. Who plays who for Chavi, the under-19s. He doesn't even really play for Barca 19. B. I think he played four times exactly. for Barca B. That's right. Four times for Barca B and two goals <laughs> in a game against Sevilla, which Xavi was at on his first day at the club. He went to watch Barca B that evening. He saw uh, Elias score two. I'm going to point out at this stage, uh, at the risk of sounding like I'm hanging medals on myself, but let me do that anyway. Um, this is a kid that people have been talking about for a while. Now, some of our listeners will know that once a year, The Guardian does this, this next generation thing. And this year, where you choose the, the outstanding players of, of that generation, this year it was kids born in 2004. And I was asked to come up with four from Spain. 
I had a rather long shortlist, I think, of eight players in the end. And Elias was on it. He didn't make the final cut. Gavi did, for obvious reasons, because by then Gavi was already playing in the first team and we could see that he was special. Uh, Elias didn't, but the people that I'd spoken to, which included people at the Federation and, and, and scouts that I know, had said, you know, this is a kid that, that we think is going to be very good. Xavi had been to play, see him play and decided to play him. Now, why does that matter? Beyond the fact that it's a 17-year-old getting his debut, why it matters is because this happened because of Xavi's determination to play with wide yes. open wingers. Yes. With wingers right on the touchline. And to be honest, with Dembele out, with Ansu Fati out, and with Serginho Dest out, he didn't have one. I, I, I suggested that this selection for Elias, when, when I was talking about it on, on La Liga TV yesterday, was indicative of three things. The fact that La Masia is super important, the fact that it's going to be a meritocracy under Xavi Hernandez, and that he wants to play with, with, with wingers, clearly. Maybe, actually, really, though, the most important thing is, is that third one, the fact that the wingers is non-negotiable. That's the most important thing. Let me add a fourth one to that, okay. um, which is that those first three things that you talk about are all true. And then the fourth is, is the one I was getting on to, which is, which is circumstance. Mm. So you want wide wingers, you want the pitch to be opened up, and that is non-negotiable as far as Xavi is concerned. And without Dembélé, without Ansu, and without even Serginho Dest, and, of course, without Dani Alves, who's not available to play until January, you don't have someone who can open the pitch on that side. You can ask and Coutinho so what, to do it. You can ask. Yeah, but you know that he's going to drift inside. You know that his, yeah. he's not going to stand right out on the touchline. And actually, in the end, he did ask Coutinho to do it. Yeah. He came on and played, what was it, 20 minutes. But, so you have this situation where you have to find people to open the pitch. So he plays Gavi on one side and Elias on the other. He then takes Elias off at half-time and puts on Abde. Yes. Another winger, another youth team player. I believe he's two years old. I think he's 19, he's 19 yeah. rather than 17. Uh, he's a little bit more direct, a little bit more physical, I think, uh, of the two of them. Or at least that was the, 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 the sign of it from, yeah. from the game. So that was important. Why? Because it showed us that Xavi wants his players high and wide to open the pitch out. Not just because it puts players in wide positions, but of course it opens space for the players inside. Because in theory, at least you draw the defenders out to you and you make those lines of passes longer to the touchline. So that was one thing. That goes hand in hand with another thing, which is we did see them play higher. We did see them press higher. We did see that defensive line right on the halfway line a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And we saw them pushing right the way up to try and squeeze the whole of the game into the Espanyol half. And I think you could argue, or well into the Espanyol half, I think you could argue that it worked as a structural approach, right? Now, let's not talk about how well they played or how many chances they made or, or goals. As a structural approach, I think it worked because you saw Espanyol push right back into the area. Barcelona dominate possession. I think it was 70% at halftime. And Vicente Moreno was asked after the game whether his approach was wrong because they played very, very low, very, very deep. Um, and might they have done better had they attacked Barcelona more, as was demonstrated by the fact that they got chances later in the game, which mm-hmm. we'll come to in a minute. Mm-hmm. And he argued, well, yes, or maybe not. Because we didn't necessarily choose to do that. Partly that was them pushing us right back. And you see this reality and you back off. Um, and, and I think, so Chavi sort of got what he wanted. Now, what's the problem with this? The big flaw in this, or, or the flaw at least seen by Saturday, they created one absolutely brilliant chance for Elias very early on, which he smashed over the bar from about six yards. Um, and that might have changed everything. 
There was a very good save that Diego Lopez made from Memphis Depay low down to his left-hand post, near uh-huh. post. Yeah. And there was a good save that he made from Busquets from a shot around the edge of the area. But most of what Barcelona did in terms of the shots they created, in terms of the chances, if you can call them chances, were shots from around the edge of the area. I don't think they got past Espanyol as much as they would like. So we were confronted by a similar flaw, which is that little touch of creativity in the areas of pitch where it really matters, or the ability to create a chance mm-hmm. was still not there. Now, that may well come with time. Then the other big flaw we got, oh, by the way, in that structural thing, I wonder if at some point there's, there's a question mark to be made about, about Memphis Depay, who I think is a very good player. I think he's a strong player. I think he's a pivot that you can play off. But does he sometimes hold the ball a little bit longer than, than, than you want that centre forward to do if you want to keep this, the, the rhythm of the circulation of the ball going and keep it high. And I, I wonder if sometimes that happens with Depay, um, which isn't to say he's not a good player because I think he is. But I, I just wonder if it's, in terms of this structure, this approach, whether it works. Then, of course, you get the other problem, which is that Barcelona do get the goal that they're looking for. Yeah. They get it from a very ropey penalty. Um, yes. So they've not really had a huge amount of creativity yet. And then with... I don't know if it's immediately after the goal. I don't know exactly when to place this. As I say, Xavi placed this at around about 70 minutes. I would place it a bit earlier, maybe 60, but I'm not really sure. Barcelona lost control. Mm. And they lost, they lost the thing that Xavi wants most of all, yes. which is the ball. Yes. And they lost control of the ball. And so this doesn't necessarily disprove Xavi's theory because, of course, he made the point after the game, we needed to have the character then to keep the ball, to play in their half, to pass it, to not let them have it. And I actually think he's right, even mm-hmm. if you could say, well, it's a bit stereotypical because it's his discourse as we know his discourse is. Mm. Um, but I think he is right about that. The problem then is, of course, you then have to ask the question, well, well, why? Why did they lose control? Why can't they keep this going? Xavi says he thinks it's not about physicality. That it's not that they had a physical collapse as the game went on, even though we've seen this before. And sometimes you wonder if it's physicality. Maybe it's just because they've too many bad habits ingrained. Maybe it's because the new habits haven't been ingrained yes. enough for them to cling on to them in moments of doubt. And I think that's what happened. And the other thing Chavi said, which I think is really important, and I think we don't hear often enough, even if it might sound like an excuse coming from Chavi, I think we don't hear it often enough. And I certainly think it's something we should say. They were up against a really good team who good. are very well worked and who know what they're doing. And, and Rauder Tomas in particular played very, very well. Good. I'm glad you mentioned Espanyol because we would be doing them a massive disservice if we if we didn't talk about them as well. Uh, we'll talk about the chances that they missed. We don't talk about referees really on this podcast at all. But the penalty that was given to Barca was a ridiculous decision. I mean, quite frankly, I've seen it time and time again and I have no interest. I am not in any way biased. I don't support Barcelona. I don't support Espanyol. I do not support Real Madrid. I was just looking at this completely objectively. It's an absolute ridiculous decision. But anyway, by the by, and you, you, you agree let, with me, let, right? Let me just... let. Well, I do agree with you. I don't think it's a penalty okay. at all. I, I kept watching it thinking I, I, I've, I've missed something here because it seems so clearly not a penalty to me. But I thought, I must have missed something. If I think there is a some kind of contact on the ankle right. as well, he's already is, going this down. This and is because the bit there's I was touch, going to come there's on. Because there's yeah. a bit of contact. That's the well, protocol this is the and the VAR can't intervene. Exactly. Well, that's exactly the point I was going to make. So now I, now, now I don't need to make it. Why do we have this protocol with the VAR that says, rather than look back and see if there's a foul, it's look back and see if there's contact. No, that's yes. not the point. Or it shouldn't be the point. Shouldn't be the point. Uh, but it's, it's their way, to be fair, it's their way of interpreting 
whether it's a clear and manifest error because they're saying, well, if there's contact, it can't be clear and manifest and it's up to the referee to, to decide whether the contact is sufficient or the rest. Yeah. Anyway, let's anyway, not. No, let's, no, not let's, let's not. We'll, let's not, we'll not, drive not. ourselves mad. Um, Espanyol created four really good chances. Two of them hit the post. Uh, one brilliant Ralda Tomas header, another brilliant Ralda Tomas uh, free kick. And then Lanry Dumata missed an unforgivable chance uh, with his head from six yards out. It's a brilliant ball in. He doesn't even have to jump. All he has to do is head it into the back of the net and he he doesn't even hit the target. There was also a chance for Wule right at the end as well in the 95th minute. How Espanyol didn't score, um, I, I, I've no idea because it's, it's, it's incredible that they didn't at least get something out of this game. Yeah, yeah. And... and um... I must confess, by the way, I didn't realise that Raul Tomas's free kick hit it the post. It did, it clipped, was, it, it clipped it just on the yeah, outside. Yeah, from where I was, it was the side netting. I hadn't realised it yeah, hit yeah. the post. Um, so, which is just my excuse for not writing the match report, but <laughs> Espanyol twice hit the post. I didn't have them twice hit the post. I had them missing three clear chances rather than twice hit the post. Um, That's all right. The, the, the header, uh, it was... I was talking to to rival podcasters Rick Sharma and Sam Marsden after the game. Okay, and I must confess, don't do I can't remember if it was. Yeah. No, I know, I know. <laughs> I, I, I must confess, I don't know if it was Rick or Sam now because they were both sitting there when I went down into the press room afterwards. Um, but it was a, it was as the old London cliche used to go. Um, it was a 50p header, wasn't it? It's like you've got a head shape like a 50p, so the ball bounces off at a funny angle. Because he's, it is such a good chance. Yeah. And you're right, he doesn't need to jump. And Vicente Moreno said afterwards, um, you know, you get this chance 10 times, you score nine of them. Well, this is the one that you don't score. Uh, really, really bad miss. The Rauda Tomas header against the post, I don't think you can call it a miss. I think it's, it's a really yeah. good attempt that, that hits the post. I think Espanyol made chances. And as I say, the main thing was the threat. One thing I'd like to add about Rauda Tomas, by the way. Yes. In that part of the game, which you know we've established was at least the first half, maybe 60 minutes, in which Espanyol were put under pressure, pressure by Barcelona, they had one outlet, and that outlet was Rauda Tomas. And the quality of Raul de Tomas's control when the ball was dropping to him from height about four times mm. in that first half mm. was unreal. Mm. And I'm going to admit, I didn't have him down, Raul de Tomas, as technically, oh. especially, especially exquisite, if you see what I mean. I had him down as a very good footballer. I had him down as someone who could do really good things occasionally. But not, if you like, the softness of touch that mm. we saw at the weekend, which I was really, really impressed by. Mm. He's, an, he's, he's an exceptional player who's getting better. You can see he's developing, he really he's is. improving. Absolutely, he is, yeah. And, and that's, that's if he keeps doing this, unfortunately, for Espanyol, he might not stay there for very long. But um, yeah, I think that's true. He's, uh, yes. he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's doing brilliant here. All right, let's move on. Uh, if there's anything that we've missed and you'd like to ask us a question, join us at Patreon and we'll answer it on the Q&A pod tomorrow. But we'll move on and discuss Real Madrid's thumping 4-1 win at Granada. Uh, it was really quite comfortable. Uh, for uh, Real Madrid, Granada had uh, Monchu sent off in the uh, in the second half for a, a, a lunge at at Vinicius. Um, Vinicius causing them all sorts of, of problems. The 
the goal that he scored is such a good goal, not because it's his finish, because it's basically a tap-in, but the way that it's created, it's a stunning, stunning collective goal uh, involving Casemiro, Benzema and Luka Modric, 36 <laughs> years of age, just sprinting forward to get involved in the attack. It's it's a fantastic team goal. It's Real Madrid's third goal. If you haven't seen it, go and see it just to appreciate what we're, uh, what we're talking about. But of the four goals, there were four assists from midfield. Cross set up the first two, Modric the third. Casemiro the fourth Uh, as a unit Real Madrid have got their first 11 pretty much sorted apart from right wing I think it's either going to be Asensio or uh, Rodrigo probably not Hazard probably not Bale and then everyone else is we know who is going to be in that in that first team they look like a serious unit now Real Madrid they do Um, and in a way this takes us back to something that that we were talking about I don't know when it was three four weeks ago when I was saying that there just isn't a team in Spain that has the players that Real Madrid have in terms of in terms of the the, the elite level, if you see what I mean. Mm. So I don't know if there's a t- I don't think there's a team that's got a player as good as Benzema. There's def- there's not a team that's got a midfielder as good as Cross or Modric. Although who knows if maybe one day Frankie de Jong will be that good. Uh, obviously Sergio Busquets has been and perhaps in the right structure could be. Pedri. And we, d- we don't we don't know how Pedri and Gavi will develop. But yes, Lamar. but what I mean is you. I don't think Lamar's at that level, to be honest. Okay. This, this is what I mean. I, I think I think the technical quality of yeah. Cross and Modric, no one else has got. I don't think the technical quality of Benzema, anyone else has got. No. I don't even think anyone's got a goalkeeper as good as Courtois at no. the moment. Yeah. Although, obviously, Oblak and Ter Stegen are, are, are wonderful goalkeepers. Mm, yeah. And in terms of the excitement, Vinicius. No mm. one's got a player as exciting as Vinicius right now, except perhaps if he gets fully fit and Sufati. Now, so you, you, but you look at these midfielders, and, and I'm sort of, this is... One of the things that I said to, to you and Al on WhatsApp yesterday, I was thinking about this. Over the course of the season, at various points or another, I've been thinking, you know, a week ago, or two weeks ago, Emmanuel Alguacil said that Miguel Moreno is the best defender in Spain. And to be honest with you, I don't... Best midfielder. Sorry, midfielder. Did I call him defender? Yes. Sorry, midfielder yes. in Spain. And to be honest with you, I don't actually think he was necessarily wrong. But this is what, what, this is what I was thinking yesterday, and as I said to you... Define best. Right, well, here we go. This is part of the point. This is what I was kind of thinking yesterday and why I sent it to you now. Who is the best midfielder in Spain? Well, one week it's Marino. One week maybe it's Soler. One week maybe it's Sergio Canales. Uh, one week maybe it is De Jong if he has a really good game or Gavi. Um, but every week it's Modric and Cross. By mm. which I mean that these two have... have it's, this isn't to claim that they've not had a drop-off because Modric started last year really badly. Finished it brilliantly, yeah. but started last year really badly. Cross has had moments when physically he hasn't looked that good. And every time he plays in central midfield, I think he's borderline disastrous, to be honest, because I just don't think that's his natural position. And, and he, he doesn't have the, what do you call it? The, what do you call repliegue or the retorno? The, he doesn't have the kind of the, the recovery speed when he's out of position in that, in that role. And then when he's t- forced to turn back, he doesn't get back very quickly. But the sort of the consistency of the quality of performance from Cross and Modric, going back basically a decade now, not quite, but nearly, is just unbelievable. And, mm. and I just think these two are just basically better than everyone else. Um, mm. And, you know, this is something that we, we raised when we were talking about Martin Erdegaard and, you know, our disappointment how few opportunities Erdegaard got. A disappointment at how bad it went at Real Madrid. Not least because I think we could all see it coming. We wanted him to stay at Real Sociedad where we knew he would play every week, where he would feel important, where he would carry the weight of the team and all that kind of stuff. And and we've said even then, yeah, but the bottom line is, if everyone's fit, who plays? Him or Cross or Modric? Well, it's not him. It's not him. 
And so this leads us to the question about Real Madrid. As you say, they've got a really good unit now. Um, and by the way, so I think Asensio is very interesting because Ancelotti was trying to reinvent him as an inside midfielder. And yes. has decided, no, I'm not going to do that. He's going to play at the top. <laughs> and the same three are going to play and he's going to play at the top. And that's how we get everyone in this team. And at the moment, it's easy because Hazard doesn't exist. Bale doesn't exist. And Rodrigo's still very young and, and, and slightly inconsistent. And was injured as well. Yeah, And was injured. Just coming and, back from injury. And that's the thing. Real Madrid, I think, have problems beyond that starting eleven, But I don't think anyone's got a starting eleven as good as theirs. Uh, they're now top of the table, uh, overtaking Real Sociedad uh, by a point. They've also got a game in hand as well uh, on the uh, on the Basque side. So, yeah, looking good if you're a Real Madrid fan at the moment. But obviously, there is a long, long way to go. Uh, tell me about the uh, the game in San Sebastián then between Real Sociedad and, and Valencia because it it finished nil nil. Uh, it was a game without. Without too many chances, without too many goals, scoring opportunities, well, well, without any goals, without too many goal scoring uh, opportunities. There was a red card as well with Aritz Elustondo being, being sent off. It was a feisty day Sunday, actually. Each of the last three matches had a, had a red card. But yeah, tell me how you, uh, how you saw the game and, and who impressed you from pitch side, because you, you were pitch side. I was pitch side for this one, and, and, and that was kind of part of the, that, that's part of the answer, I think, because um, certainly people watching this on telly thought it was dreadful. <laughs> Um, and I thought it was quite enjoyable precisely because it was a feisty game and pitch side as I've said before you get a sense of the athleticism you get a sense of the 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 lingering menace as well and and that happened very early there was a moment right at the start where Sillison confronts um is it Isak I can't remember who it was now it might be Isak uh, and right at the start, oh, here we go then. This is going to get a little bit tasty. And the other thing that was very striking, and I apologise for this, because it makes me think that I've yet again become too Spanish and I'm no longer English enough. But right from the start, I was thinking, the referee needs to spl- start blowing some fouls here or this is going to get out of hand. Now, I much prefer a referee to let it go, but he was letting everything go. And you could mm. see that at some point, he was going to have to go the other way and start whipping out the cards like mad. You know, mm. like like a croupier on crack. He was just bam, 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 cards coming out <laughs> everywhere. And it was right. just, it was just sort of, it was kind of inevitable. And obviously it's partly inevitable because this is the way that Bordelas uh, approaches things. Because this is what Valencia feel that they have to do. Um, by the way, being pitch side, I spoke to Jasper Sillison after the game. Uh, and I basically got told, mate, you're an idiot. You haven't got a clue. Because I said to him, you know, what, essentially I asked him what this thinking was was of a of a lineup with five in midfield because they played kind of three central midfielders and he said well I don't know who told you it was five in midfield <laughs> he said it was three up front I was thinking well, they, they See, weren't I told up. you they... mate just stop stop overthinking these questions all right <laughs> just go touchline just go yeah tough game huh that's all you have to do all right <laughs> I mean to be fair it was the third or fourth question the first question was basically right, okay. tough game huh right, uh, right. and I actually asked him I actually asked him about the fact that it was boiling over and he'd said um, yeah, the referee could have given a few fouls early on, and and it got. It, I think he said it got interesting. Let's put it that way, or something right, like yeah. that. Um, uh, it, it usually does get interesting with uh, with Valencia, yeah. who, who who do have the most fouls per game. Unsurprisingly, I was. Um, Obviously, at work uh, doing the game, and, and and Pete Jensen was on Cocoms, and he he did the made the Freudian slip, the very very understandable Freudian slip, and he, he called Valencia Getafe yeah. a couple of times because obviously Jose Bordalas used to manage Getafe and had them playing in a similar yeah. way to how Valencia are now playing. Yeah. In in response to your your question, by the way, in terms of players who stood out, it was it was a tough Soler. game. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, two players stood out because of control in the madness, and that was Soler and David Silva. Although David Silva, I felt, was never really in areas where he influenced the game. So when he got the ball, it looked calm. But right. he was never really in a place where it mattered, I didn't feel. Whereas with Soler, I felt he really was. Uh, I thought he looked very, very good close up. And the other player was, was at least in the madness, and considering he was, he was singled out for some pretty serious treatment, I thought, in the first 20 minutes or so, uh-huh. Uh, Adnan Yanusay was, really, was at least prepared to go at Valencia and keep going at them, despite getting a bit of a kicking quite a bit. Um, and he's got a little edge of, of, I don't know if it's cockiness or nastiness about him, which I quite like. He does, he does. Um, but, but yeah, it was, it was very disappointing from Raul Sofiad. And one of the things that was noticeable in the last five, ten minutes, when, when Valencia actually made a couple of chances, there's a header and it smacks, isn't it, the header, I think. And then there's the, the one that Gaia almost gets to at the far post. At that point, you could see very clearly, and, and this is something that Ramiro kind of confirmed after the game, that they were looking around and thinking, you know what, actually... A draw is all right, hmm. despite the fact that it takes top spot off us. Uh, to be honest, unsurprising that it wasn't a goal fest at the Reale uh, Arena. Mm. Uh, I'm just going to read a, a tweet from um, my colleague at La Liga TV, the excellent commentator Tim Lee, who's uh, uh, pointed out that Real Sociedad haven't scored more than one goal at home in any game this season. Mm. They scored one against Raya, it was a penalty. One against Levante, it was deflected. None against Sevilla. One against Elche, which was a defensive error. One against Monaco, which was a set piece. One against Mallorca, goalkeeping error. One against Athletic Club, which was a penalty. One against Sturm Graz, which was a set piece. And none against Valencia. Mm. So while they've been top um, for the last five weeks, they're not anymore. They haven't been doing it by blowing teams away at no. home. Certainly not. Certainly not. And and yesterday they did. They lacked a bit of goal to coin the yeah. Spanish phrase uh, once once more. But yeah, I mean that might be changed by the re- by the return of Mikel Oyarzabal, who it came might. on and, and played might. what was it twenty five minutes. But of course he played twenty five minutes. But within I think ten of him being on the pitch, uh, Elustonda was sent it. off. Yeah. yeah. Um, by the way, Elustonda when he was sent off, I don't know how clear this was on the telly. Um, he kicked a ball into the crowd very, very hard from about five metres. Genuinely, <laughs> if anyone had been in the way of that. They would have been in trouble. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw them basically throwing, I think one of the coaches basically grabbing him and just yes. throwing him off and saying, that's it, just get off now. Cause, yeah. um, okay, uh, quick word on Fran Escribar being being sacked. Uh, slightly unfortunate for uh, for uh, Escribar, who had done a fantastic job with Elche uh, last season in keeping them up. It was also their uh, second time that he's been uh, he's been in, uh, in in charge of Elche's one of the most successful managers. I'm going to use another tweet from Tim Lee, who's been studying. Doing oh, I love this research tweet. for yeah, me. Yeah, I love this tweet. I, I think El- I know which one I'm going to say. Elche have finished above the Premier División relegation zone three times in the last 44 years. On each occasion, Fran Escriba was in charge. So it feels yeah. a, a little bit uh, unfortunate for them to, for them to sack him. But you know um, what? I can understand on. it. Um, well, because well, of well, the squad let, they have now. Or? Well, let, yeah, let, let me, let me, let me um, do the, the sort of a slightly flippant opening line, which actually is how I've, how I've written today. Um, pissing off your boss is never a good idea. And he had Pipa Benedetto, who is not just the striker, but was also part owner of the club, warming up for the whole of the second half and didn't get on. So, you know, you're not, you're not continuing if that's happening. Um, I, think, I think the other thing is that even if you look at last season, they survived on the final day when their fate wasn't in their own hands and Wesker rescued them by not winning. Um, they, 
only won. They picked up 18 points in 17 games with with Escudibar last year, which have of course extrapolated over a season is 38 points, which is normally enough for survival, but only just, only just. Uh, they won five games under him, I think, and, and three draws. You look at this season, they've only won twice. They have picked up only two points of the last six games. They, yeah. they have been a bit unlucky in that they'd only been beaten by more than one goal once until yesterday. But then yesterday yeah, yeah. got totally taken apart and they fell apart as a defensive team as well as a, as a creative one. And I think the expectation level with the squad they got in the summer probably went against him. But I also think there's another element to that, which is that, and I don't want to be kind of conspiratorial about this, but I think there is an element of this. Just a sort of a disconnect between him and ownership, a disconnect between him and the squad, a sense that he is trying to kind of find out what to do with these players that I'm not completely convinced he necessarily wanted. He is cautious by nature, and I think there's a desire for something else. And to be honest with you, although he's been really, really important for Elche, and although Elche's fans, when they think about him, will wish him well, I don't think there will be kind of an enormous sense of, oh my God, what a disaster letting him go. Uh I was checking the replies to the uh, official tweet and it was basically like, thanks, Fran, you're a legend, but time to go. Yeah, exactly. uh, And and, and look, you know, they are in the relegation zone. Now, he said yesterday, you know, I felt that that normal phrase, I felt capacitado, you know, I felt able to bring us around, but but it wasn't, Mm. you know, it it, it wasn't to be, he wasn't given that chance. And I think that, you know, let's see who the new manager is because lots of slightly unusual names being thrown into the mix, including Hernan Crespo, which would be Uh, great, wouldn't it? It, it would, and it wouldn't be entirely surprising if it was Hernan Crespo, given his nationality. Obviously, he's Argentine. The owner of Elche is Argentine. Seven members of the squad are Argentine as well. Uh, so let's see if an Argentine manager uh, ends up at the Estadio Martinez Valero. Uh, that's it for uh, today's edition of the pod. Before we go, the in the Segunda, Almeria beat Valladolid 3-1. They're now eight points clear. At the top of the table, Eibar, who are second, drew 2-2 with Lugo. Tenerife uh, are third. And uh, Malaga beat Las Palmas 2-1. Oviedo, the mighty Oviedo, beat Amorebieta by two goals to nil. Um, that's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with the Q&A pod over at patreon.com forward slash TSFP. Please, please join us. It's good fun. We'll have a great time. If not, don't worry. We'll be back here, as we always are, every Monday to look back at the weekend's football. So we'll see you then. Adios. Cheerio. Network.